Welcome to Coastal Conversations, a monthly program that deals with major issues confronting the nation's coastal areas, marine and Great Lakes. This program is made possible through the generosity of the Roddenberry Foundation. I'm Jerry Schubel with the Aquarium of the Pacific, and I'm your host. Today we are going to explore conservation in the Anthropocene, the epic of humans. Are our traditional approaches to conservation still the right ones? Are they adequate? Or do we need to redefine conservation in this era of human dominance? Some say that humans now dominate all of Earth's processes. I have with me today Dr. Peter Kariva, Chief Scientist of the Nature Conservancy. Peter is a member of the National Academy of Sciences and one of the world's leading ecologists, and one who has challenged many of our views of conservation and ecology. Today we're coming to you live, and you can submit questions by email during the program. The address to which you can submit them should be on the screen. We will try to answer as many of them as we can at the end of the program. Peter, welcome. I know you're somewhere on the East Coast. Where are you? Yes, I'm in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, where I'm visiting one of our scientists who's doing research on coral reefs with Pete Peterson. Well, welcome. So, Peter, let's get started with a definition. What do we mean by the Anthropocene? When did it begin, and what's different about it? But, Gary, I think you set it up pretty well in your introduction. The Anthropocene is the stage in the Earth's history where we humans are the primary agent shaping everything. We shape the biology, we shape geochemical and geological processes. And, you know, as you probably know, our scientists' colleagues argue about when it began. Some would say it began with the big megafaunal extinction at the transition between the Pleistocene and Holocene, and others would say it began with the agricultural revolution, and others would say it began with the industrial revolution. Um, I don't think it really matters when it began. There's no argument. Everybody agrees that the Anthropocene is going full throttle now. I don't know when it began. What about when it will end? If we look forward, what are the prospects that the Anthropocene will continue as far into the future as we can imagine? You know, I, I cannot imagine the Anthropocene ending in our lifetime or our children's lifetime. Uh, it, it's hard for me to even conceive of a future in which humans are not the primary factor shaping the Earth's dynamics. So, given our population, given our consumption, for as far as I could see, we'll be the dominant force in the Earth system. Then, if, if we're the dominant force, the traditional approaches to conservation don't seem to be working. We're on an unsustainable trajectory, many of us believe, and many of our help fellow human beings are being left behind. What should we do? Uh, well, well, first we have to start and stop and think, well, what do we humans need? And um, what are what is meeting those human needs due to the planet? Well, we need food and food security, and we need energy. But when we need food, that means we need healthy ecosystems. Food does, is not created in, a, in an industrial plant. Um, food production comes from nature. So the first place to start is to connect food production to a healthy natural ecosystem. We also um, need energy. 
And in those cases, uh, we, we extract oil, we extract coal, we mine, we're building renewable windmills, we have solar. In, in those cases, we have to ask, how do we get that energy and not do damage to ourselves? But in, the, the key here is to say, meet human needs, but don't do damage. And I think what's new about sort of new conservation is that those needs are being met by large corporations and businesses, and we consumers have a role to play as well. So if we, with businesses and the consumer sector, to influence how we meet our needs, we can secure a planet that is also good for nature. So, Peter, and I would agree with you that the agriculture and, and energy are the two human activities have, that have taken the greatest toll on the earth. And if you look forward with the population that may increase by 50 percent, and agriculture right now takes up about 40 percent of the ice-free earth's surface, and we use somewhere north of 70 percent of all the, the fresh water to grow. Um, and with the projections that we'll need 40% more food in the next 20 or 30 years, are we going to be able to just increase crop yields through traditional approaches, or are we going to have to be thinking about uh, different, different ways of raising our food? I, I think we, we're going to have to experiment with a lot of different ways of raising our food. Our yields and our agricultural performance has constantly improved because of technology. And I don't see that stopping. What I see happening is, is we embrace technology to increase our yield and to increase the resilience of agriculture. We'll also have to be mindful of environmental side effects. So, you know, I mean, it, it's kind of fascinating. I, I call it smart agriculture. But information, potentially genetically modified plant, so biotechnology, information, precision irrigation, new varieties of plants, all those could be one form of enhancing yield and not commonly referred to as a sustainable identification. The other form, which is pretty cool, there's just a paper that came out in Nature um, a couple days ago pointing out that you can also have agriculture mixed with natural systems and still protect a lot of wildlife and plants and, it, and it's a different form of agricultural production. And those two forms of agricultural production, um, really intense, high tech, and then agriculture mixed in with nature, I think hold great promise for feeding the extra couple billion people we're gonna be adding for soon. And so much of the, uh, what we have to do is to be open to new ideas and to embrace technology. One of the concepts that uh, many of us grew up with is the, the idea that nature is fragile. Where did that idea come from? And is it based on good science? Is nature really fragile, brittle, e easily uh, broken apart? Well, I think that idea originally came in, in, a, in a scientific sense from there used to be an idea of a balance of nature, of, of nature being um, you know this this tight equilibrium and everything connected in a in a in a checks and balances, 
And basic, pure ecology has moved beyond that and uncovered how dynamic nature is and, and how much change there is. But I think the original notion of fragility came out of this balance. If you're, if you're just barely balanced, then you don't want to get out of balance. And as it moved into sort of an advocacy arena and an environmental policy arena, I think the nature is fragile, got a lot of traction because it brings an urgency about it. It says that if nature is fragile, then my God, we need to protect it and take action now, uh, given how heavily we humans are treading on the planet. So it, it had a foundation in an old view of ecology and it gained traction in as being a useful metaphor for environmental policy. And, and is the concept of carrying capacity also related to f fragility of, of the earth? When you, you think back when uh, we were hunter-gatherers, it was estimated that the carrying capacity of the earth was 100 to 200 million. Uh, Paul Ehrlich wrote the population bomb in which he projected that hundreds of, of tens or hundreds of millions of people would die of starvation in the 80s. And, and that didn't happen. So clearly the carrying capacity is to some extent a function of our innovation and our creativity. But there must be a, a point beyond which it's uh, not elastic. What, say a little bit about your views on carrying capacity. That's, there was a very interesting analysis done by Joel Cohen many years ago. So what you're taught um, even in college, you're taught about exponential human population growth, sort of unlimited, bounded, you know, unbounded population growth. When you actually look at the data, it was faster than that exponential. The only way it could be faster than exponential was if there was acceleration due to technology. So th that, that, the fact that at one point in time it was faster than exponential tells you about how important technology is in shaping what happens to human populations. And that has led to the view that, of some, that technology will always solve our problems and there's no limit to the number of humans we put on the planet. I don't happen to hold that view because I, I just from basic mass action and, and energy demands or, you know, taken to the absurd, you, you, you would only be able to stand up if you crowded the planet too much. So certainly there are limits to how many people we can put on the planet. I don't necessarily think that as we overcrowd the planet, it's going to collapse in an apocalyptic way. I think it would be more insidious. It would be more of a gradual decline in the quality of life we each as individuals experience. And so when I think about caring capacity, I, I don't find it quite as useful a point of view because nobody's ever going to be able to agree what the caring capacity is. You can argue about whether it's 9 billion or 7 billion or 5 billion or 12 billion, and it seems pointless to me. What I would like to focus on is what is the quality of your life that you experience on a planet as a function of how many of us there are and what we do to meet our needs. And if I think we talk more about the quality of human life and less about some absolute caring capacity, we'd be having a much better discussion. Ah, good. Thank you. We're, and we may come, come back to that. What, why is it that so many environmentalists, and uh, you and I are environmental scientists, and I think environmentalists, but many of our colleagues like 
bad news. Why is it that, that they like bad news so much? Is it because it helps us raise money for our organizations and our activities? Or are we just naturally grumpy people? <laughs> Jerry, you're naturally grumpy. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> you know, there's, I think there's a, lo there's a lot of reason for that. Um, one is that a, a lot of environmentalists come from an academic environment. And as a scientist, you're taught to find the flaws in everything, to pick everything apart. So there's a certain intrinsic, what's the flaw in, in our system? It's also true that bad news does in some way get people's attention, much better than good news does. Bad news is a, like an early warning signal. It gets people's attention. There is some, you know, you offered a sort of a joke. Some people are grumpy. You know, there's studies that are, have been done recently where you put a, on a computer screen two different images. One is a positive, a pleasant image, and one is a sort of horrific image. And people, when they're shown the computer screen, some people, their eyes all go to the good image, and other people, their eyes all go to the bad image, and it's a very consistent personality trait. So there's probably a little bit of some people just um, gravitate towards bad news. And it was interesting because last July there was an ocean exploration forum at the Aquarium of the Pacific that was uh, put on with, with NOAA. And uh, in one of the plenary sessions, Michael Jones from Google, after hearing a number of talks, he looked out at all of us and he said, the problem with most of you people is you're, you're just too grumpy. And uh, that got a laugh. But it also got some discussion because then he went on to say that you've been telling me that uh, the earth and the ocean are all going to die within 50 years and you started telling me that 50 years ago. So I think maybe we need a better, a better story. But P Peter, um, I agree with you that the focus should be on more on the quality of life, the quality of the future that we want for everyone. And then we look at the trajectory that we're on and if the present trajectory doesn't bring us close to that desired future, you have to have disruptive strategies that will move you on to a different trajectory that gets you closer. So I would like you to, to comment uh, on that. Uh, do you think we're on a sustainable trajectory? And if not, what are some of the disruptive strategies that you, as chief scientist for the Nature Conservancy, which is the largest environmental organization on Earth, what do you advocate? Well, first, we, we, it is a solvable problem. And, 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 I, and I say that because, and, and I know you know this, uh, Derry, that one piece of good news is that human fertility rates have been plummeting ever since about 1969. So many countries in the world, women are having too few children to even replace themselves, the population. So, but there's a huge momentum. There's a huge lag time before that'll take over and the population will stop growing. And there are still regions of the planet where the population is growing and that's not true. But at least it doesn't look like it's gonna grow forever. So then you step back and say, Yes, but in China, in India, consumption is growing rapidly. So even at population levels off, the developing nations, are, they have a huge appetite. And how are we going to do that? Well, I think what we have to do is we have to have, my way of being disruptive would be talk to a totally different set of people. 
conservation has typically had very good conversations with like-minded people who love nature, who may be a little bit wary of technology. Many of my friends boast that they don't have a television in their house. Um, many of us worry about our children always being on their smartphone or on the internet. And I would argue, let them instead take advantage of all these rapid changes. Of, of not destroying the planet, and how come even social media and things that we rebel against be part of the solution? And I think that's what we have to be disruptive. And I think social, social media has to be because we're such a connected world and we have opportunities for people all around the world now to collaborate in ways that they never did before. And if you look at the growth of cell phones, they're growing as rapidly in the developing world as they are in the developed world. So somehow this new commons has to be one that we exploit, it seems to me. Absolutely. I think social media, we have to think of it as removing people because when our children are sitting back to them on their cell phone, they're removed from us. But it's also an, an engagement. It's also a way of engaging a community. And I took my daughter hiking, and I was annoyed at her for always having a cell phone with her. But then I realized she would take pictures and be sharing the pictures with her friends. But, yeah, and I've heard you, Peter, you've also argued that we need to do a better job of connecting people of all ages with nature. And the two, it seems to me, they're not inconsistent. No, they're not at all. All right, so Peter, I, I left uh, the world of academia and I now am in the aquarium world. Is there a special role for aquariums and zoos and science centers and natural history museums? We get lots of visitors and some of them, particularly aquariums and zoos, attract a very broad cross-section of, of the public. Is there a role for us? Absolutely, you know. I mean, as, as you mentioned, you get so many visitors and you get a much better cross-section of the population than we in the standard conservation um, sector receive. Um, you get a, you, you reach all economic sectors and you also reach all ethnic sectors. And it's a wonderful time to engage children. I think many of us as parents, very fond memories of taking our kids to Aquaria and to zoos. What I'd like to see Aquaria do is, is engage the visiting public in volunteer activities, or somehow not just make it be about education, but make it be about, is there something you could do? You know, in, the, in the youth generation today, volunteerism is at an all-time high. So that 50% of high school kids engage in some volunteer activity, and 33% of college kids do, but only 2% of them are engaged in environmental volunteer activities. So I would love to see they already do the education thing very well, but also get the engagement and, and try to find ways that young people can volunteer their time or volunteer something that uh, makes a difference in the environment. And, and volunteerism in all uh, museums, aquariums that I know of, we couldn't run our institutions without them. We have more than 1,200 volunteers here. They range all the way from 
teens up to people who are in their 80s and uh, they make a wonderful contribution. Peter, the other thing that I have heard you talk about is the importance not only in volunteerism but in citizen science. Now, the two can obviously be connected. What are your thoughts on, on citizen science and how they can help us document what's happening to the earth and find some solutions? Well, we use citizen science quite a bit already in the Nature Conservancy, from everything from uh, in the terrestrial world, non-native invasive plants are a big problem. We have cell phone applications that allow people to take a photo of what they think is a, a weed and invasive and geolocating it, and then we can go in and control it. We use citizen science. Um, there's a huge community of birders in the U.S., and they provide data that actually helps us manage and do conservation on a yearly and even seasonal basis. I think the potential for linking smartphones to collecting data and to using the data in real time to influence decisions is is totally untapped. And you feel you can feel part of a community. You can do experiments. I I, I would just love to engage um, many of our smartphone application designers in figuring out how to do this. And I, th I think there is a, a wonderful opportunity, and it has another benefit. I think it, it gets people of all ages more interested in science and, and why we, we need to have science. So here, I guess, the, the part of the, the message is that we have to put humans back into the equation in our environmental conservation movements and somehow figure out how to elevate the, the large, the several billion people who've never had access to clean drinking water, electricity in their homes, uh, sanitary facilities, and part of our strategy has to bring them up so they can pursue all of the things that, what it means to be a human. You know, I absolutely, it brings to mind another point about putting humans at the center of this conservation story. And it really ought to be easy. I don't think people are against the environment. And I think there's an intrinsic uh, well, connection, attraction, whatever you want to call it, between humans and nature. And we've had 100,000 generations uh, being a prey or a predator. And it's only in the last maybe 10 generations concentrated in cities, but we're connected to nature. We have to make it easy to draw on that connection, and it can involve technology. It's going to involve zoos and aquaria. You can't just be having to go backpacking in Yosemite for two weeks. If we give people ways of connecting to nature um, in the context of the very vibe, I think their lives will be more rewarding. They'll be happier and nature will be much better off for it. While we need to have uh, national parks and wildlife areas and marine protected areas, I think you've made the point that there's, there isn't enough of the space left to solve these big problems. We have to accommodate nature in the places where we live, work, and play, and because we are part of nature. Absolutely, and this is the nature group only in the last couple of years has started an urban conservation program. And it's, a, it's for exactly that reason. Bringing the connection between nature and people 
where people live. Of course, you know, in the United States, over 85% of the population, of the U.S. population, lives in cities. So it's the best way to link them to nature, bring nature to the cities. And I, yes, I, I want to, to uh, read a statement uh, from Ed Wilson near the end of his book, The Social Conquest of Earth. And then I would like you to comment it. We're coming near the end of our time. And the, the quote goes like this, Earth by the 22nd century can be turned, if we so wish, into a permanent paradise for human beings, or at least the strong beginnings of one. We will do a lot more damage to ourselves and the rest of life along the way, but out of an ethic of simple decency to one another, the unrelenting application of reason and the acceptance of what we truly are, our dreams will finally come home to stay. And I think the, the important phrases are the simple ethic and the, the, the reason we have to combine these in some kind of a strategy going forward. Would you like to comment? Uh, it's a beautiful passage. She's such a good writer. I, so the way I think about that, making it a little bit more mundane and not as poetic as, as Dr. Wilson did, is that we have to encourage the human value that values and loves nature. So value, at the same time, we also have to pay attention to the economic, more material needs of people and making it clear that that sustainable world, that paradise that that Wilson describes, also makes economic and material well-being sense for the human population. It's a combination of values and somewhat materialistic meeting the needs of the human population. If we, if we can unite those behind conservation, uh, it's not either or. It's not pitting them against each other. It's uniting them. We can have that paradise. And, and who we're, we're talking to and, and not simply talking to the same people that we have uh, concentrated on for so long. I want to thank my guest, Dr. Peter Kareva, Chief Scientist for the Nature Conservancy, for a stimulating discussion. I also want to thank the Roddenberry Foundation for making these programs possible and Coastal America and its 25 coastal ecosystem learning centers for distributing these programs. We didn't get any questions emailed in, so I'm assuming that that means, Peter, you, you were so eloquent and so clear that uh, you answered all of their questions. More than likely, I was so hopeless. I hope you will join us next month on May 20th when we explore the topic of medicines from the sea and how we are ransacking the world's largest and most prolific medicine cabinet without knowing what we are losing. I will be joined by Dr. John C. Williams of the City of Hope. I'm Jerry Schubel for Coastal Conversations. Thank you.